right, everyone. So my name is Nancy Fulton, and as everyone who has ever attended one of my events knows, we always start on time. Um, I currently run events for writers, screenwriters, filmmakers, and other creative pros um, here in Los Angeles. And you can learn more about the events that I have coming up at nancyfoltonmeetups.com. And tonight, I'm interviewing attorney Dinah Perez, who helps people sell film and television screenplays to Hollywood. So with that in mind, um, Dinah, do you want to spend just a few minutes talking about your um, your background and your practice and, and the work you've done in the past helping people sell projects? Yeah, well, I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about my background because they can read about it online, and I think they're probably going to be more interested in content. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to Loyola Law School. I've been in practice for 22. This is my 22nd year in practice, which is mind-blowing to me. Mm-hmm. And I would say I'm, I'm a solo practitioner. I would say that my, my business breaks down to probably 75% film and television and 25% music. And uh, I mostly, in film and television, I mo- oddly enough, it, this this is not not by design, but by execution, because I mostly represent writers and writing teams. So mm-hmm. I've had a lot of experience working with, with writers and not only doing their deals, because, I mean, doing a deal for a writer really is the last thing in the process of being a writer. Uh, so I work hand in hand with my clients, and um, sometimes when they start working on a on a project, the first thing that they do is that they call me if they have something that either requires that they partner up with someone, or if they're working on something that's not completely original to them. And so they call me because they want to make sure that they're going about everything correctly. If you're writing a screenplay or a pilot and a treatment for a television series and you're working with somebody, you really need to stop before you start working and you need to create a collaboration agreement between all the parties. And that's really important because it's funny because I just had this conversation with with a new client today about how he had implied that he was going to be given a certain credit on a television series. And I said, that's the problem. In your head, you thought they were going to give you a supervising producer position. And in their heads, what they meant was a senior producer. And because you didn't come right out and say it, everybody continued forward with a mistaken assumption. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you want to avoid when you're collaborating with someone. The consequences can be dire if you start working with somebody and you don't have a written agreement and everything falls apart because copyright is automatic and copyright attaches as you create content. And so both parties will equally own whatever is created unless there's an agreement that says otherwise. And in in truth, most collaboration agreements are 50-50. But what the collaboration agreement will do is address the issue of what happens if if one of you decides you don't want to finish it, mm-hmm. if you have a falling out. Who gets it? How does the writer who falls out get compensated for any of the work that writer did? Does that writer get compensated at all? You know, and if you're working together, it spells out certain deal terms like who's going to be pitching this property? 
who decides on the sale. Uh, there are going to be creative issues and there are going to be business issues that come up in terms of the collaboration. And if you can't agree on an outcome, who has the final decision? So having a collaboration agreement forces everybody to really think about their relationship and how that relationship is going to work out under good circumstances and under bad circumstances so that the worst thing that could possibly happen doesn't happen. It doesn't get finished and the whole thing gets shelved. You mentioned in um, the notes that you sent over that there you can put triggers into the document which indicate um, things like you know, if we if we receive a reasonable offer for our project, then you know it can't be. We both agree that we'll, we will not decline it. How do you how do you determine exactly what kind of what represents a reasonable offer in a context where you have two or more writers who you know who may have very different ideas of what represents reasonable? I mean, do you, do you have to decide that up front? Because for a lot of people, that might make it so the deal doesn't go forward at all. What I do is I put in, I either say an offer that's industry standard, an offer that's WGA minimum. You know, we we will come up depending on who the writers are. Mm-hmm. You know, then we will know what that offer needs to be. Mm-hmm. If we have neophyte writers, you know, and none of them are WGA minimum, we can say an offer that's at least seventy five percent of WGA minimum. It is really common. In fact, it's I think it's actually the rule that when you have two collaborating writers you will have, you know, one of them will fall out over the course of the process. And then how do you define how, what, what percentage, how is it, is there a fair way or do you, have you come up with a way to define how it's really quite honestly, It's going to depend on at what point that collaborator falls out. Mm-hmm. If the collaborator falls out three quarters of the way in, then, you know, they should get pro rata their share of the money, but as it, as it, as it's represented in the in the final draft of whatever gets made. Really? So so um, if at the end of the day, because they they dropped out and they weren't involved, like let's say they dropped out while they were writing it together, but not before it went through development, mm-hmm. right? With with a with a network, um, then it would be hey, you will get. Uh, a pro rata percentage based on how much of your content ended up in the final, and in no and in no case will you get less, let's say, than ten percent, kind that of a thing. Sense. So, um, and I also have in here what happens if somebody dies, you know, mm-hmm. and if one of them dies, you know, it, it would be the same formula as if they had dropped out, except that the money would go to the estate. Is it? It is. Isn't it true that if? Um, in, at least in the state of California, um, if a writer is married and he writes a project, then his spouse is is actually a um, co-owner of that co-owner of that project. Well, it's not just California; it's as per copyright law, pretty much. Really? Um, uh, because I mean, in most states, you do have either community property or tenancy common. Mm-hmm. So. Whatever intellectual property gets created, it's considered part of the marital assets. Mm-hmm. So that means if my co if my co writer gets divorced from his wife and it's um, a big dispute, and it she means gets that, half of it. Uh, is that always the case, or is it the case only if um, our written agreement between the two of us specifies that no. that? No, 
Um, it, it, you have to look at it like community property. You know, it's it it's it, it it's not worth putting that much effort into talking about it because mm-hmm. there are more important issues to discuss during our call. And the reality is that this is really only going to happen if somebody's died. And at that point, you know, it's 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 going to be if there's a spouse, the spouse will get half of it, and the other half will go to whomever they designated in their will. It could mm-hmm. be the spouse. It could be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, just an, I think the only time it gets to be interesting is when you have uh, just because copyright law lasts for so long, right? I mean, is it at seventy-five years plus the life of the yeah. author? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's like pretty much it's always going to be, uh, you know, be, being inherited by heirs. Right. So, so um, the the other thing I'd I'd like to touch on, and then we'll, we'll move into agents mm-hmm. and shopping and deal making, okay. is life stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, a life story is um happens when you have a writer that wants to write a screenplay or a series about a person that's either living or a person that lived and died. Mm-hmm. And it's important for people to understand that there are certain rights that people have mm-hmm. that we can't take away from them. And you can't just go and write a life story based on somebody just because you want to. So there are two rights that everybody has. One of them is the right of privacy, and the other one is the right of publicity. So the right of privacy allows us to keep private our private lives. But the interesting about the right of privacy is that it's on a spectrum. You have people that have an absolute right of privacy, like the neighbor who lives across the street from you who was a Vietnam vet, and nobody knows who he is except the people in his immediate life. Mm-hmm. And then you have people like the Kardashians which are on the other end of the spectrum. And in the middle of the spectrum, you'll have people who used to be famous, uh, people who are less famous than the Kardashians, because the Kardashians put their whole lives out there for people to know about. But you've got, in the middle somewhere, you've got people who are less inclined to be public about their private lives. And you've got um, criminals who maybe were what I, at one time what I call celebrity criminals, like mm-hmm. like Jody Arias, for example, or Charles Manson, people who were all over the news, O.J. Simpson. And then you've got people who were celebrity criminals at one point in their lives, and like 30 years later, somebody all of a sudden decides they're going to write something about them, but they've recaptured their privacy. So when you have somebody like the Kardashians, they have much, much less right of privacy than the neighbor who lives across the street from you. You really need to get a life story agreement if you have somebody that has an absolute right of privacy. Mm -hmm. And if you're writing about somebody who, let's say, is a politician, you you can disclose things that are known about them, but you can't disclose things that are really private. My rule of thumb, because pretty much any insurance company is going to require it anyway, is to get a life story agreement from people that gives you the right to write the screenplay and to air it. Now, regarding the right of privacy, Mm -hmm. in many cases it dies with the person. Really? And it depends where they died. So state of California will treat it differently than the state of New York. State state of Washington treats it differently than the state of New York. 
I, if somebody's living in the state of California, if, if they're resident in the state of California and then they die, and they die here, they die then, here. They get the right they have right a certain of set of rights. But if they're if they die if they were living in the state of New York and they died, they have a different set of rights. Yeah. Is it, so is it, so, is it different so, if you're if they're actually overseas, like somebody who lived in the UK or yeah, New York? Yeah. Every every place is different. So if you want to, it, let's say that you want to do write a, a life story about someone. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the questions, if the person is not living anymore, one of the questions you have to ask is, where did the person die? Mm-hmm. And then you need to do research to find out, okay, in that jurisdiction, does that person have a right of privacy after death? Is it where they actually died or is it's it where, where they, they were resident when they died? It's usually, it's, it's, it, you have to look it up, but in most cases, it is where they died. And then, you know, the other thing that you have to balance against that is the right of publicity. Mm-hmm. Because in most cases, the right of publicity does survive death. But you, you still have to check it out just mm-hmm. to be sure in the, in the jurisdiction where the person died. But, for example, here in California, the right of publicity um, survives death. And the right of publicity allows you to commercially exploit the name and likeness and image of a dead person. So if I wanted to sell Marilyn Monroe memorabilia uh, in California, I couldn't sell it because she gave those rights to somebody, and that person is collecting revenues mm-hmm. on that. So the state of California, because we have so many celebrities here, mm-hmm. is very, very willing to give the estates of celebrities the right to benefit from the commercial their, use of their work. Yeah, after death. Mm-hmm. But is, but is it so? Is it the case that if somebody is doing a docudrama um, based upon? Uh, Marilyn's life story and their their source is all pub, you know newspapers and so forth or interviews with people. Do they need to have the same? Do they need to have clear um, uh, a deal yes. with the estate in order to be able yes. to write about her? Yes, yes, because there are two rights. So you can probably get away with it in terms of the right of privacy, mm-hmm. but you have the right of publicity that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And in reality, let, let's talk about the realities. Because mm-hmm. got, we've got all these rules that say you can do this, you can't do that, you can do this. But in reality, at some point in time, if you find a distributor, you're going to have to satisfy the distributor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you'll have to do to satisfy the distributor is get E&O insurance, Arizona Omissions insurance. Mm-hmm. So either the distributor or the Arizona Omissions carrier is going to require that you have written agreements because – the distributor and the insurance company want to avoid a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those those are a couple of the big issues. The last issue that has to do with with uh, the screen writing a screenplay or a pilot has to do with source material. Mm-hmm. If you are using a book or a magazine article or anything that you did not create as your source material for what you're writing. Let's say that you're, you decide you want to adapt a novel or a play. If that material is not in the public domain, then you need to get permission. You need to actually enter into an option purchase agreement mm-hmm. with the owner of that source material. And by public domain, I mean it no longer has a valid copyright. I know a lot of people like to throw around the words, well, it's fair use. Yeah, fair use is a very limited exception to the to copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. And it's generally not going to be fair use unless you're writing a documentary. You have to go through the trouble of acquiring the rights. Do not write it until you have the rights tied up 
because, first of all, it's copyright infringement for you to create something mm-hmm. from material that isn't yours. But secondly, who wants to waste their time? Mm-hmm. So right? if if somebody wants to do a um, takes the legend of Paul Bunyan and wants to turn it into uh, turn it into some sort of uh, animated movie, that's one thing. Paul Bunyan's a legend; it's been around for a long time. Or right. the legend of, of Bigfoot. But if if they want to take um, something like the Perfect Storm, where that guy died, even though it's in the common, mm-hmm. even though it's in you know the the common market, even though everybody knows the story, that's something that you would need to get. You know, if you wanted to do something based upon a book called The Perfect Storm, you'd actually have to get those right. Right, but let's go back to your Paul Bunyan mm-hmm. example, because mm-hmm. that's a more interesting one. Okay, because okay. there was actually a, a very similar situation in terms of somebody, a uh, college professor, had mm-hmm. written a book based on the life of Sally Hemings. Mm-hmm. Sally Hemings was Thomas Jefferson's uh, slave mistress, mm-hmm. and he had children with her. Mm-hmm. So another woman came along later, and she wrote a, a, what was supposedly a novel about Sally Hemings. And that woman was sued for copyright infringement by the professor, and she lost because she had used the professor's book. And so you have to be very careful when you're using a book um, about a historical figure because sometimes an author will have research, and they'll have point A, and they'll have point B, and they'll have point E. Right, mm-hmm. and how do how do they tie point A and point B to point E? They can come up with their own theories mm-hmm. for point C and D, mm-hmm. and you need to if you're going to use source material of a historical nature, you need to know what was the author's theories and what was based in historical fact. Right, you can use historical fact because you cannot copyright history, mm-hmm. but you have to be careful not to be using the theoretical. If I want to make something that's based upon something that happened in court, um, that you can happened use recently, that as long as it's part of the transcript. So the court transcripts are okay, which is one of the reasons I guess people do so many um, crimes, crime-based stories because right. they can it's something or crime docudramas mm-hmm. because they can actually can they and they can reenact those things, correct? Yes. So, mm-hmm. Like that's why they have courtroom dramas is because you can reenact reenact those things, and yes. that doesn't violate the portrayal. Um, if I have somebody sitting up on a stand portraying a witness that actually appeared, I'm not violating that witness's right of privacy? Well, they might change, first of all, they might change the witness's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might get a release from the witness. It depends. Mm-hmm. It depends how the production is doing it. And, you know, some productions self-insure, like mm-hmm. big studios like Disney and places like that, they self-insure. So there's certain leeway that they that they have and mm-hmm. certain decisions that they might make that other people may not. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when so do you think that um every project fiction or nonfiction needs to have errors and omissions insurance uh it's, well it's not that I think it it's required right in order for the film or or actually for the screenplay well, the screenplay gets incorporated into the film mm-hmm. so you're not going to buy the errors and omissions insurance until you have distribution. Mm-hmm. Because you don't need it unless it's being distributed. And so as a writer, that's not something you have to worry about. That's something mm-hmm. that the producer will have to worry about. Mm-hmm. But you will have – the producer will be worried that you have all your docu- documents in order. Right. So, you, so, that, so you're saying that even though it's not something that the writer's going to have to pay for, it's something they have to be conscious of yes. when they're writing, that, they may, that, mm-hmm. that, that at some point their script will have to be um, turned into a movie and it will have to be insured. And so yes. people are going to be asking them hard questions like, okay – 
you know, you did a true life story about Abraham Lincoln. Where did you come up with this information? Right, that, right. That's and, unique? and here's the thing. If a writer engage, engages an attorney up front, if they're going to be doing any of this, mm-hmm. they don't have to be worried about, oh, my God, I didn't think of this. Oh, my God, I didn't think of that. Because the attorney will think about all that for you. Mm-hmm. And the attorney will help you tie everything up. And, and here's the thing. If you can't tie up rights that you need, mm-hmm. then you don't write the screenplay. Mm-hmm. You don't waste your time. That makes a really good. Uh, that makes a. Um, uh, it's a really good um, advice. Is the? Yeah. Do you think it's the? Do you think it's? You, one of the things you mentioned also, I wanted to talk about. You talk about a right of privacy, and and uh, you mentioned that there's the concept of libel and defamation, which is when you actually somebody was somebody might have been a historical figure or might have been involved in a case. So you if I get to defame, you can't you can't defame a historical figure. Right. But if I get I'm saying if I let's say that I buy the the life rights of the wife of a famous person, right? And um do I have to buy the life rights of four or five people around that person? It depends. So that, okay, so cuz I what if cuz what happens if they say, well, you know, you took her story and you made it sound like you took you bought the rights from one person and you're representing that as being true. But uh, you, it depicts me, and I don't. And that's not actually what happened. You can't knowingly defame people, mm-hmm. and not everybody's going to be thrilled with what you do. But generally, what happens is that when you're doing a life story situation, um, you try to acquire releases from everybody who's going to be important to the story. Cool. And uh, and life rights is is a release, correct? It's a release yeah. or a contract, isn't it? It's a, yeah, it's a contract. It's a, it's a it's a it'll be a it, the the result will be a release. Right. It's basically saying I this is I'm giving you my story and I'm, I'm not going to sue you if you actually produce it. Right. Okay, so I just wanted to go over that because I wanted people to see how it is that you could end up needing an attorney right up front and how important it is because here's the thing. If you don't get all of those pieces in the puzzle correct, you will not be able to sell your screenplay. Mm-hmm. And that's why I felt like it was important to talk about that and get it out of the way. I think it's good. The, not having the rights tied up, whatever they are, will keep you from being able to sell the screenplay. Make sure that it's done properly so that you don't have to worry about that. Once you've got those rights tied up, you don't have to think about them again. So you want to go out and you want to shop your screenplay. Well, my advice to you is before you do anything mm-hmm. is that you register a copyright. Go ahead and register the copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office. You go to copyright.gov. It'll cost you $35, and you you, you pay for it and you upload it. If for some reason you can't figure out how to do the application, you can always have your attorney do it for you. But um, you really should register that copyright before you stop start shopping it. Now, I know that a lot of people – there seems to be a lot of confusion among writers – between a copyright registration and a WGA registration. Mm-hmm. Copyright is protection that you have by law. And although copyright is automatic, you won't be able to sue unless you've registered the copyright. Mm-hmm. So it's best to just spend that $35 and register it before you start shopping it. Is it the case that that you can't sue because... It, it's too difficult to prove that you actually own. You, you're saying it's so it's very expensive to prove that you own the intellectual property. So even though I get a copyright the second that I create something, if I send my screenplay around and somebody else gets it, gets to the copyright office with it before me, the, the, 
the whenever I go to trial, I'm going to have to prove somehow that I wrote this thing, even though I didn't register it, and they did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the bottom line is that the reason really doesn't matter. All mm-hmm. that matters is the formality. Mm-hmm. And the for, formally, you are required to register a copyright if you want to litigate. Okay. Back to the confusion between mm-hmm. the copyright and the WGA registration. The WGA provides no protection mm-hmm. whatsoever. They are useful if you have something that you cannot copyright. For example, copyright only protects the expression of an idea, not an idea. So if you have a treatment, you can register the copyright for that treatment. But if all you have are two or three sentences, that's not really the expression of an idea. That's just the idea that you've written down. So if you only have an idea, go ahead and register it with the WGA. Because even though the WGA does not provide you with protection, it will allow you to park your idea somewhere that shows that it existed as of a certain date. Mm -hmm. So that if you're out there and you're pitching and you have an idea theft issue, well, you couldn't register the copyright, but hey, I registered the idea with the WGA. Look at the date on the registration. And I went and I pitched it to you three weeks later. So it already existed when you said it didn't. So, okay, so just remember anything that you've, that you've written, like a treatment or even a synopsis or a teleplay or a screenplay, you can go ahead and register a copyright. It'll be valid. But if you have what is essentially just an idea, go do the WGA registration. And so once you've done that, then you can start shopping your screenplay and you can start pitching it. Now, you have to be really careful when you pitch because you don't want to essentially give the person that you're pitching this to a gift. And when I say by a gift, I mean you meet somebody at a party or at a restaurant and right away you start blurting out your idea to them because you're so excited that you've met somebody who could maybe say yes to you. The problem is that if you blurt out the idea for your screenplay, you've lost it. You've given it to the person who listened to it because you have to give people the opportunity to say, you know what, I have a lot of projects in development. I don't want to hear your idea. I don't want to I don't want to be put in a position where I'm developing something similar and now all of a sudden you've pitched this to me and now I've got a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to give people the, the opportunity to say no. So my suggestion is that you only pitch in formal settings. Make an appointment to go in and pitch. Make an appointment to pitch it on the phone. Make an appointment to pitch it in person. Keep a paper trail, you know, so when you make the appointment, follow it up with an email that says, hey, it's great. It was great talking with you. I look forward to coming to your office to pitch, blah, blah, blah. And then when you leave, make sure that you follow that up with an email thanking them for the meeting and the purpose Mm -hmm. of the meeting. Because now you have a paper trail that shows that you were actually in there to pitch. The reason that's so important is that You don't have a written contract to sell your content at that point in time. But you do have what's known as an implied contract. When you go meet with somebody and you go and you pitch your property to them, it is implied that you're there to sell it. They don't have the right to go ahead and steal it from you saying, well, you know, it was just an idea. He he just came told me his idea. No, he was in your office pitching to you because he wanted to sell it and be paid for it. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's why that's really important. 
Sometimes even in an office setting, you can set up an oral agreement where, you know, um, there's a conversation about um, what happens if you make it, you know, I want to be paid, you know, WGA minimum, and I want a credit, blah, blah, blah. And if that happens, you can reference that in your your, um, email. But you might want to run that email by your attorney before you send it. Mm -hmm. So that's another way that you protect your screenplay when you're pitching it is no blurred outs, which is what that's known as, a blurred out. And then lastly, submission releases, which I think that every writer who has has written anything and shopped it at least once knows what a submission release is. Mm-hmm. And I would say don't sign it without consulting with an attorney because the submission release essentially throws away the baby with the bathwater. It gives the person that you're signing the submission release for essentially permission to steal your idea and to take all of the elements out of your screenplay that, you know, are not copyrightable. Um, and, and, and in some cases it even gives them the right to go ahead and make the movie and then pay you later, whatever they feel like paying you. So I, I always suggest to writers that if a company tells them that, you know, they can't take a submission without a submission release to find out if they can make an attorney submission. And um, just yesterday I made an attorney submission for someone. And it, it that just entails, rather than the screenplay coming from the writer, it comes from the attorney. And very often the company will take the submission coming from an, an entertainment attorney and not require the submission release, which I prefer to do without. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Okay. So let's say that everything goes really well and – the company wants to go ahead and they want to um, option your material. It's, well, let me put it to you this way. In my 22 years in practice, I have never had a company offer to buy a project right from the get-go because companies don't want to spend the money to write, to buy a screenplay until they know for sure that they're making it. So what they want to do is option it, which is essentially the equivalent of renting it for a while. And I, a lot of producers try to get away with doing a free option. Mm-hmm. I try to keep my writers from doing free options for a couple of reasons. The first one being is that you're going to have to pay me mm-hmm. because I don't work for free. Attorneys don't work for free. And attorneys are not going to work on a percentage basis on a free option. Mm-hmm. Just not going to happen. So if you're going to be out of pocket on legal fees – then you need to be paid an option fee. You know, it can be, you know, if the if the producer doesn't have a deal anywhere and they don't have, you know, they haven't had a lot a, a lot of tr- a, a lot of experience and they don't have a big track record, you know that maybe they don't have a lot of money. But you know what? If they can't come up with two thousand dollars, then they don't belong in the business of producing. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. You know, and 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 if it's a WG if it's a WGA writer, the WGA does require ten percent of the purchase price as the option fee. And the purchase price, the way that the WGA figures it out is based on minimum. I know that a writer, you know, a writer might have a quote of a million dollars, but that's not writer's guild minimum. It's only 10% of writer's guild minimum. So uh, now that writer who has a million dollar fee may require a hell of a bigger, much bigger um, option fee than WGA minimum, but technically WGA members, they can option for 10% of of the purchase price. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, you know, how much 
somebody gets paid is really going to depend on on what's being offered and whether the writer has a track record, whether the production company has a track record. Um, I saw a really odd deal yesterday where they were offering to pay the writer uh, $50,000 for the purchase price, Mm -hmm. but then they wanted to do a production bonus that was based on the budget with a floor and a ceiling. And I didn't like that, and I rewrote the whole thing because I don't want a production company to exercise the option for $50,000 and then never get the movie made. Because mm-hmm. now you've essentially sold your screenplay for $50,000. So the way that I normally structure them, if, if we don't know what the budget is going in, I structure it as a percentage of the budget, which is, for me, it's 2.5% of the budget mm-hmm. with a floor and a ceiling. So mm-hmm. in this case, it was one hundred and three hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. I I also include in these contracts, um, if you know if, if it goes to a studio or a um, or a mini major, um, that they get at least half of the setup fee, which mm-hmm. is the fee that the studio will pay a producer for bringing a project over. I want my client to get a box office bonus. You know, very often, you know, you've got a client who is not being paid a lot of money up front because it's a lower budget project, for example. So if the film ends up being theatrically released, let's a great example, Paranormal Activity, and it does really, really well at the box office, then why shouldn't the writer benefit from it, right? So I put in bonuses along the way. So, you know, up to a $100 million box office, my client might get an extra $25,000 for every $10 million bump above $50 million. Mm-hmm. and they get to make a lot more money. Uh, I put in a nomination and an award bonus. Mm-hmm. One, one, of the and, things that, one of the things that you'd mentioned um, in, the, in your notes, which I think we really should touch on at this point, because I think a lot of times, a lot of people that are involved in my groups are sort of first breaking in, and they're sort of, they don't, they don't know if it's possible for them to pitch projects directly to producers or to studios, or if they should be working with agents or managers. And well, a lot of times they don't know okay, which well, is better before for them. We, before we get there, let me finish the deal terms, okay? Okay, cool. okay so, um, and then one of the, one of the other things that, that I know a lot of writers really are interested in is mm-hmm. percentage of net profits. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that in my experience, 99% of films never hit net profits. Mm-hmm. I so I prefer to fight to get my, my client as much money as possible up front. And I, I do, I mean, the net profits are pretty standard, but just don't ever expect to get anything. And lastly, it's the credit, which is really important to my clients. Um, today, I was negotiating a deal where this company decided off the bat they want to have another writer come in and rewrite my client right away because they want a, a writer with a marquee name. Well, writers don't have marquee names. Most people don't remember who was the writer of a movie. You know, you might remember it if you're in the film business, but not otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is not an excuse for bringing in a whole new writer because it can diminish my writer's credit. And so even though my writer may not be a WGA member, I always put in my contracts that credit will be determined using the WGA's rules for credit determination. Because I want to make sure that I protect my writer's credit as much as possible. Because I know that that can be parlayed into the next project, but they have to get that credit. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So, and then there are other things in the deal that that um, that you know I will negotiate for my client. And when I when I when I work with somebody, I do go over everything with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in terms of of agents and managers, it is almost impossible for a writer who is unproduced to get an agent or manager right up front, mm-hmm. um, unless you get a personal introduction to one through a friend, for example, or you happen to meet one at a party or something where you're talking to them and and they're willing to read your material, it's going to be very difficult because both writers and agents, they're really busy. And agents, I mean, um, managers and agents are really busy. And agents are really focused on money. Mm-hmm. They really, they're not really into nurturing talent. The agents are not what they were 30 years ago. They don't have time to be nurturing talent. They've got a lot of talent that they represent. And before they go and they look to sell the screenplay of somebody who's never been produced, they're going to go sell the screenplay of somebody who has been that they know is pretty much a sure thing. Uh, Managers will take more time to nurture talent because a manager is looking at the long-term viability of a client over an agent. But even then, they really they they don't want to teach a writer how to write. They mm-hmm. don't want to sit there and develop the writer's screenplay. You pretty much have to have your screenplay finished. Uh and I mean really finished before um you can even show it to a literary manager. And my my advice to most writers is don't let that stop you. Because you have to open the door somehow, mm-hmm. and if that means that you you have to go out and pitch, then you go out and pitch, which means that you need to know what a log line is, mm-hmm. and you need to have a three minute pitch that you can share with a producer or a development person mm-hmm. when you call um on the phone because very often they won't schedule a pitch meeting to meet with you face to face. They don't want to waste that time. But if you get them on the phone uh, and you get to pitch them on the phone, you better be ready because you don't want to lose your opportunity because I can't tell you how many times people call me and I say to them, what's the log line? And they don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And so, I know that that's somebody who's just not going to get their screenplay sold. Mm-hmm. So I, when you and I were speaking yesterday, um, I mentioned the fact that the LA Times had just declared the spec script dead, and you said, "Yeah, you know, it's much easier to sell something if you've got a book, if it's if it's based on a book, or you've written a book, and then you're writing the screenplay. Um, you've written the screen, you sell the rights to the um, book, and then you um, from that you get a chance to write a screenplay. Yeah. Can you sort of talk for a few minutes yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, so the thing with the spec script, and I'm talking about studio deals here, because you might find mm-hmm. an independent producer who's willing to do a little $1 million project with you. Mm-hmm. But the, the issue with the studios is that movies have become so expensive. They're almost cost prohibitive in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have to really hedge their bets. And they might buy a spec script from Guillermo del Toro or Chris Nolan or somebody at that level who has that track record. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who's an unknown quantity, they don't want a spec script from you because they're spending too much money. Mm-hmm. And they've had too many movies that they thought would do well flop at the box office. So they hedge their bets by um, making a movie that is based on material that's going to bring an audience right away. Mm-hmm. So if they're if they are 
making a movie that is based on um, a best-selling novel, if they're making a movie that's based on a graphic novel or a movie that's based on a video game or a movie based on a famous person, mm-hmm. they know that there are a certain number of people that are going to show up at the box office on that very first weekend because mm-hmm. they bought the book or they read about the story online or, or because that person is, follows that graphic novel and that, you know, that, that comic book is really popular and every, all, all the young kids go to Comic-Con and they're crazy about it. Mm-hmm. So um, in all likelihood, that's what's going to happen. So if you're trying to break into the industry, um, if, you're writing, if you want to write something that's bigger than a little million-dollar project, um, I recommend that you look for material. Mm-hmm. Go look for a magazine article that was in, a, in Rolling Stone or in Forbes or something, a big publication. Uh, go find a novel and uh, go find a play uh, that was on Broadway. Uh, maybe you can find a graphic novel that's done really well that's not owned by Marvel Studios, mm-hmm. right? Because you won't get anything by Marvel. Mm-hmm. But um, try to acquire underlying content that is going to be of value to the studio. Mm-hmm. Is that true for and, television shows as well? Like if, if somebody's running, wants, you know, spec TV pilots, or they or step with uh, um, television. You know, series. television is a whole other breed because television is so difficult to break into. It's harder to break into than film. Is it really? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. because there are only so many hours available for television. Mm-hmm. On tele on on the ne- on a network, HBO only has so many hours, and ABC only has so many hours. Number one, number two, most of the production companies, if not all of the production companies that are producing for television, they're all run by writers. Really, television is a writer's medium. Film mm-hmm. is a director's medium. Television is a writer's medium, and so most of those producers are developing their own ideas. They're not really interested in somebody else's ideas. So you kind of have to work, whereas you could write a screenplay and decide that you're going to write a million-dollar screenplay and you're going to go out and raise money and you can get it made. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with television. That makes sense. So, so, you know, Chuck Lorre is probably not going to be interested in any spec script that you write for a series. Mm Mm-hmm. So your best shot to get into a series and to develop that career where you can eventually be your own showrunner is to sell uh, a a teleplay for one episode. Mm -hmm. You write a spec then and you shop it around and you hope that they'll hire you to write one episode. Mm -hmm. But to get a TV series, to land a TV series from the get-go, highly unlikely. I guess I think some people have managed to do it because they produced an independent film they did extremely well, and then they and then somehow they cross over. Yeah. yeah, they cross yeah. over. They cross yeah. over. But in general, if you're starting out in television, you're going to be working your way up the ladder. Right, which means you're going to be starting out as a staff writer, and then getting a staff. You're getting a staff writer job or a PA job, and then moving up through the writers that yeah, writers writers, assi- writers assistant. You sell one episode. Maybe they once you sell the one episode, maybe mm-hmm. you know you they end up putting you on staff somewhere. But it's it's a longer road to hoe if you want to go into television directly. Right. So that so the, you've given us a lot of good ideas in terms of 
the fact that people should look for underlying properties that make their their project more valuable than just a spec screenplay that they came up they came right. up with. Right. Right. Now, the, the one thing that that um, everybody needs to be aware of is. You know, just like you expect a producer to pay you an option fee for your screenplay, that under the owner of that underlying property is going to expect an option fee. Right. So this so is an investment you'll have to make. Right. That's something. You know, and it's interesting because the the agreement that you know my my writer clients enter into on behalf of their screenplays is the same agreement that the owner of a novel will enter into. There's going to be an option fee. There's going to be a purchase price. There's going to be profit participation. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So the when so when, a lot of times um, people who manage to get to know producers and who get an opportunity to write for them find themselves facing a work for hire agreement. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about a work for hire agreement and how that's different from selling a spec screenplay or selling selling a screenplay to somebody? Mm-hmm. Well, um, when you do an option purchase agreement, if the producer can't raise the money. The option will expire, and you will keep the option money, and the screenplay comes back to you. The rights of the screenplay revert back to you. When you do a work-for-hire agreement, you're essentially entering into a contract with the producer where the producer is saying to you, hey, I am going to pay you to write a screenplay, either the one that you pitched to me or the one that's based on my idea, doesn't matter, Excuse me, but I'm going to hire you to write this for me, and this is what I'm going to pay you, and I'm going to own it from day one. Mm-hmm. They will own it, and it's how the deal gets done depends. Sometimes they will pay you a flat fee mm-hmm. to do all the steps from, you know, treatment and beat outline to final draft, mm-hmm. um, or what I usually do when I structure these for my producer clients is I do it as a step deal. Mm-hmm. So this is what will pay you to write the treatment. It's what will pay you to write the first draft, the second draft, the polish, whatever. And if at any point in time my client, the producer, feels like the writer's not delivering, they don't have to proceed to the next step. Mm-hmm. But my client, the producer, gets to own everything. And what will eventually what i what i put in agreements when um i represent the writers uh is i put in a turnaround clause which essentially says and i put this in in the option purchase agreement as well in case the movie gets purchased but never gets made is that if the producer doesn't get it made within 5 years i give my client the right to buy it back hmm. that's cool so if my client wants to buy it back in five years, they'll have it. Usually, the industry standard is an eighteen-month period, an eighteen-month window, when they can pay back the producer the money the producer spent developing the screenplay, and then get it back. Now, usually, the writer is not out of pocket on this. What happens is, for example, I have a client that has had a prop the property that was at Paramount. It was at CBS. It was at Universal. It's been everywhere. <laughs> and there is $20 million against this property yeah. because they had some really high-powered writers working on them, writers that got like a million-dollar fee. And so what will happen is let's, let's say that Warner Brothers 
decided that, yes, I'm really interested in this property. Well, Warner Brothers will then sign an agreement with everybody that has a turnaround right with this saying, if we make the movie, we'll pay you back. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to be out of pocket, but you do have to find a producer who's willing to pay the turnaround fee when they make the movie. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because it, basically it makes it so the other guy is whole and the, and the project can go forward without... Um... Right. And sometimes, you, and sometimes, you know, for example, you might end up with somebody like, let's say that Universal paid the lion's share of of writer's fees. Let's say that, that of the $20 million, let's say that Universal paid $15 million. They might say, okay, well, yeah, we want our money back, but we also want the right to distribute the film in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, the work for hire, look, as as a writer, um, you really want to become really good at rewriting. Mm-hmm. You know, my friend uh, Ray Wagner, who produced Turner and Hooch, and is no longer with us, always said to me, the art of writing is rewriting. Mm-hmm. He was a man who had been president of production at MGM. He had developed The Goodbye Girl and The Champ and Fame and Legends of the Fall and mm-hmm. The Lion in the Winter. And he he really knew about development. And we talked many times about writers and writers that, that both he and I had worked with who made their lives really difficult because they were not really willing to rewrite. Mm-hmm. Some people just don't have that talent, and I get that. Mm-hmm. But there are uh, there are other writers, and I've represented some of them, who refuse to deliver the rewrite that the producer wanted. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that once somebody has an option on your property, mm-hmm. or once somebody hires you as, under a work-for-hire agreement, they have the right to replace you. Mm-hmm. Why would you give somebody the opportunity to replace you if that wasn't necessary? Mm-hmm. You know, and I get that some writers are not really great at rewriting. That's fine. But if you really are if you can really rewrite your own content, you're going to more likely stay involved in your project up until the end and get the sole credit. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because there's more money involved, there are more bonuses involved, there's more of everything if you get the sole credit in addition to, you know, that really boosting your career. And lastly, if you are really good at rewriting, guess what's going to happen? People are going to hire you to come in and doctor up scripts of writers who can't rewrite. Mm-hmm. So that in between you selling your own projects, you have a way to make a living as a writer. That's true. I mean, I, I think it is a talent for rewriting. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that, that um, you know, people that choose to be writers choose to be writers because they enjoy writing. And so what happens is, you know, they find a, everybody has their Achilles heel, and some people really do not like to rewrite things. So they're really good at doing the first draft and the second draft. Mm-hmm. But after that, they're done with that project, and they really didn't, they don't care if there's going to be a second or a third or a 15th writer because they don't, if they have to spend one more minute working on it, they're going to go crazy. So, and some of them I've met are really brilliant writers. They're really huh. amazing. I love their first huh. draft. I like their first draft better than their second draft because that you can tell that the you know they've lost interest. So yeah. you know it, it 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 is an art to be able to be to collaborate with other people in um in the process of creating a film that based upon the needs of a specific producer. You know it just it just is the case that. And you have to. And you have. 
Yeah, and the thing is, I had a writer who pretty much, you know, sometimes people just shoot themselves in the foot. I had a writer who um, had his property option by Universal, mm-hmm. by a big producing team, mm-hmm. and he refused to do the rewrite they wanted. Why didn't they just hire somebody else to do it for him, or did they? Uh, they didn't want to do that because no, they didn't because he dug his heels in so badly. They were mad by They the essentially end. said, "Screw you! We're not going to help you have a career. Yeah, you should not be working." Yeah, and they so paid we- him, and they paid him to do the rewrite on his own screenplay. Yeah, you know, it's like, not like he was doing it for free, and they mm-hmm. just said, "Forget you." And he had an agent at um, who was he? UTA at the time. And, he, I mean, it just didn't make any sense. And that that was just somebody who decided that he would rather be right than be happy. And he gave up his entire writing career over it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've met a lot of people that have done that. I've met a lot of people who are great writers that when push comes to shove, they cannot handle the aspect of the industry. It's a very collaborative industry, and you have to yeah. work for it. Well, you know what? Here's what I tell writers. If you don't want to collaborate, go become a playwright. Right. It's true. <laughs> I tell people that too. I go, listen, you can be an author or you can be or you can be a writer producer. Tarantino, I don't imagine he he's a good rewriter at all. He's a very good writer, but I doubt that he's the kind of person you're gonna hire to rewrite things. <laughs> he well, doesn't work and play well with others. Yeah, 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 yeah. But even as a writer producer, guess what? Mm-hmm. The director's gonna step in and they're gonna do whatever they want. Yeah, exactly. No, you're no. That's true. It's quite, and the thing is that the director probably, you know, will force you to make to make changes based upon the stuff that they need to have in the screenplay, and you're going to have to write write stuff for actors. But it is definitely true. I've told people the same thing. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe being a screenwriter is not for you <laughs> because it's yeah. just, you're going to yeah, yeah, yeah. because you have to want you have to actually enjoy the part where somebody comes in and goes, "What if the lead's a girl?" <laughs> you go, but exactly. It's a boy. Exactly. <laughs> I just can't see that, you know. No, it's definitely true. Um, you are most of the people that you work with um, WGA members, or do you work with both WGA and not I have WGA? Both. both. Mm-hmm. I have both clients that are WGA members and clients who are not. You know, a lot of client because there is in the world of independent film is so huge, and most independent uh, production companies don't want to become WGA members. They, mm-hmm. you know, a deal becomes substantially more expensive. Once you're dealing with with people that are union members, well, that a lot of in, a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of production companies, you know, if they can find what they want and their writers are not WGA members, they'll go that route. Mm-hmm. Well, I think so, working with working with either working with the <laughs> working with the WGA, the, um, the Teamsters, and SAG. I mean, that is that's a relationship. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, it, well, it's worth, yeah, yeah, it's worth <laughs> in a relationship because that you know they'll shut you down. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, right away, the minute you go and work with a union, right away, pension and health, 15% on top, more expensive right on top. Right. And then, you know, you've got the minimums where mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a union, you're dealing with those minimums. And then above and beyond that, residuals. So when a film is in distribution, the residuals get paid from dollar one. Right. So you could be paying a union residuals before your investors have even broken even. Oh, you will be. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing is that most often the difference between an investor breaking even and not breaking even could be those residuals. Exactly. Have you um do you actually work with writers uh sorry, do you do you work with writer producers and 
um, filmmakers as well to help um, build build the uh, contracts they need in order to produce their projects. Yes, I do. I do production legal. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I I do I do everything that you think an entertainment attorney would do except litigate. Really? Because that's really that's really not an entertainment attorney. That's really a litigator. Mm-hmm. So I don't do securities law because mm-hmm. that's not something really entertainment attorneys do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I I work with writers, producers, directors, actors, and in terms of producers and writers, I work with them with them from day one. So mm-hmm. if I have a producer who is optioning material, I draft the option agreement for them. I negotiate it. Mm-hmm. You know, I do everything I do for the writer, but on the producer side. And then mm-hmm. once the film, you know, goes into production, I do production legal. Right. And when um, you mentioned that you do um, you don't you don't do securities law, but do you have recommendations for if people need to get a private placement memorandum or need help um, doing the Form C for a Regulation CF campaign? Do yes. you have people that you refer to yeah. for that? Yeah, I have an attorney that I usually refer people to because I've been referring people to him since I was in law school, mm-hmm. and I find that he's the least expensive securities attorney I've run across. Number one, number two, that's all he does, and he—that's what he knows very well. Mm-hmm. And lastly, he will charge—he will split his fee in half, and mm-hmm. charge half of it up front, and the other half when the when the filmmaker has raised the money. That's really smart. I mean, it's it's very helpful to um, because that putting together that first amount of money in order to put together a private placement memorandum is is something that stops a lot of projects from going forward. Even when people have investors, they're, it's it's just daunting. Well, you know, the advice. other thing, yeah, you but know. the other thing that he does as well is he works on a sliding scale. That's excellent. So if you're raising, you know, $500,000, you're not going to pay the same as if you're raising $3 million. Right, because it's a different, the different sets of agreements and it's less complicated. No, it's really mm-hmm. not, but mm-hmm. he tries to accommodate everybody. Well, that's really nice of him. Well, I'll be sending people to you, and <laughs> so you could so you could refer him to them. So yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I I find that you know why are you going to spend forty thousand dollars on all your paperwork when you could probably do it for less than ten with him? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting is about fifty percent of the people that are in, um, in my groups are are producers, which is to say, and you know, some of them do projects, you know, from you know, 100k, and some people do projects that are that are um, heading up to um, two, three, five million. So ac- across that wide spectrum, the number of people who find themselves needing a securities attorney is pretty broad. I mean, it's just the right. nature of the beast, you know. Well, yeah, you have to do it. And you know, the one thing that I'll tell people, because mm-hmm. um, everybody always asks me this question, is about finders fees. Mm-hmm. It is against the law to pay for a finders fee. Yeah, I'm always telling people that too. It's shocking how few people believe you, isn't it? I know, I know. I I always I always love my favorite question is when they say, e- "But what if?" or "Even if this?" and I say, "Yeah, it doesn't forget the even if." Yeah. The bottom the, the, line is it's a very black and white rule. Normally, yeah, they, let me just explain something. Securities um are stocks and bonds, just like your stock you could buy in the New York Stock Exchange, okay? Mm-hmm. So Anytime you sell an investment, you're selling a security. Mm-hmm. And so after the Great Depression and the stock market crash, mm-hmm. our government decided that they needed to do something to avoid that ever happening again. Mm-hmm. And so they put all these regulations in place. Mm-hmm. So securities law is very black and white. There is no gray. Mm-hmm. So when I say to somebody, you cannot pay anyone a finder's fee to introduce you to investors, mm-hmm. 
you really cannot pay anybody a finder's fee to introduce you to investors. Now, I know that a lot of people have run across people that call themselves finders mm-hmm. and that they may have paid a finder's fee in the past or know people that pay finder's fees. You're still breaking the law. Mm-hmm. And if FINRA, which is the agency that oversees all of this, mm-hmm. finds out about it, and I'll tell you in a minute how they find out about it. If they find out about it and they find out that you paid finder's fees, they will make you return all of the money that you raised, even if you already spent it. Mm-hmm. So you really don't want to be in that position. Mm-hmm. And um, what was I going to say that I was going to explain? Gonna, you were going to talk about, um, you were talking about finder's fees and about the um, having to return all the money. And you were going to say, tell us how FINRA finds out that people... Oh, um, the way they find out about it is... Um, because you get sued. Mm-hmm. You know, if your film loses money and you made the mistake of putting projections in your business plan, which I don't recommend, mm-hmm. because normally when people put projections in their business plan, the example films that they use mm-hmm. are films that were all big hits. Mm-hmm. They never put in as many losers as they do winners, right? Mm-hmm. So you may have investors who thought that this was a sure thing. Mm-hmm. And if they if they lose their money, they're going to turn around and sue you. And guess what the lawyer's going to look for? Mm-hmm. Anything and everything that you did that you shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. And if there was a finder, they're going to look and see if you paid finder's fees. Mm-hmm. And that lawsuit will lead FINRA to you. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be in that position. Well, it's, the other thing about it is my experience with finders is that they don't always bring you the, you know, you need to have accredited investors. You have need to have investors that meet certain certain standards. That's not usually what finders bring you. The other well, thing no. is there's, there's also they, they a thing don't... called a, a dealer broker that, you know, it's like there's people that do this job professionally and for a living and that are SEC, you know, that, that meet SEC, right. SEC usually qualifications. At, yeah, they're usually you know? working at a stock brokerage firm. That's what a broker right. dealer is. Right. You know, somebody working at a stock brokerage firm. Right. But, you know, my biggest problem with finders mm-hmm. is that, aside from the fact that it's against the law, many of them want a fee up front. Mm-hmm. Run for the hills of anybody that asks you for money up front. Mm-hmm. Okay, because they're they're not making their money being productive. They're making their money off the fees that they get up front. Mm-hmm. So if they got 50 people, each of which pays them 50, you know, pays, pays them $5,000, there you go. Mm-hmm. They've made $250,000 in a year for saying they're a finder and not really having having uh, investors that actually invest in films. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, the I think I'm gonna we should check to see if um, people have any questions because we've, okay. um, uh, we've covered we've um, covered a lot of information that uh, people need to know. And is there anything else you think you know before we open the floor for questions? No, why don't you go ahead and open it for questions? All right, great. Um, so if you guys have any questions that you'd like to get answered, please send me an email at nancy.fulton at yahoo.com. That's nancy.fulton at yahoo.com. Um, and I'll go ahead and I'll make sure it gets asked. So we have we have one from someone um, who says, is there an amount of time after a person's death that would make it no longer necessary to get life rights from their family or friends? For example, somebody like Wild Bill Hickok, who died in 1876. 
Well, in all, it, well, it, it it depends on whether anybody inherited inherited his right of publicity. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say that you're probably safe mm-hmm. in proceeding without that, but it's always best to consult with an attorney and just have the attorney, you know, whether it's me or somebody else, look into it and see who, who their heirs are and whether they, they have been exercising their rights. Mm-hmm. And is it okay if information about um, their life story is derived from newspapers? I think you, you mentioned that you can't take just read any book and then take whatever it says in a given book and turn that into into your screenplay because the the author of the book for of a historical book will have made inferences and if you right well the way what I usually well first of all finding something in a book and finding something in a newspaper are two different things because mm-hmm. remember how I said that history mm-hmm. is not copyrightable mm-hmm. so you, arguably something that you read in a newspaper is history mm-hmm. so you can't take um can't take an article about something that's really unique out of out of let's say Rolling Stone magazine and mm-hmm. use it because that person did a lot of research and um it's just a unique thing but if somebody is reporting on a trial or reporting on a crime that they witnessed mm-hmm. um you can write about that that's very cool. Um, if somebody is writing a life story about somebody like William Colgate, the founder of Colgate, um, who died in 1857, is it necessary to get rights from the Colgate Company? Well, and, you know, here's the thing. It's important to see where the person died and what the right of publicity is, because in, mm-hmm. in most cases, the right of publicity is going to last less than 100 years. Mm-hmm. So um, once you know where the person died, the attorney can look and see, you know, they can go ahead and look and see um, whether the estate has any has any rights anymore. That's you know, cool. the one the one thing that I I always tell people to be careful of. Now you're dealing with something like a company. Mm-hmm. You have to be careful not not to put anything out there that's defamatory against the company. That makes total sense. I, I 100% agree. I think people so have although, to be very careful. Although William with those Colgate things. is dead. If you if you say well you know they, they, he developed this poison that goes into 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 the toothpaste and they're still using it you know now mm-hmm. you've got a problem right because that's quite the allegation um, right so somebody else asks um, about transmedia franchise transmedia franchise differences which means which he says where you will be selling or pitching only partial segment of a whole concept while explaining the benefits um, being a part of benefits of being the pioneering part of a whole. So I think that means he's got an idea, sort of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where he's saying, "Look, you do the film, and then there's all these other friend, uh, all these other opportunities for making." Well, toys I will. And so forth. I, I, yeah, I will tell you. I don't know what exactly. I just want to make sure that I'm getting your question correctly. So if if I don't have it correctly, write Nancy back, okay? okay. So, um, these days, studios acquire all the rights. So. If I come up with an animation concept for let's say I was let's say I was the originator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and we were doing it now, the studio is going to want the motion picture rights, the television rights, the merchandising rights, the book rights, the stage rights, the theme park rights. They're going to want everything. And the way that they normally do the deals with writers 
is that they will pay you for the initial exploitation. And if it goes to television, you know, um, you will get passive royalties. Or if you end up writing on the show, you'll actually get paid to be a writer or producer on the show. But um, in terms of merchandising and things of that nature, all that other stuff gets thrown into the pot for profit participation. Right. That makes sense. So, so the it's a, it seems like it's very much a um, the kind of if you want to the more complex the deal gets, the more important it is to have an attorney involved, particularly for something like that. If you're bringing something, that's oh, you very can't complex. negotiate. You, yeah, you can't negotiate your own deals. Yeah, never negotiate your own deals. I always say to people, when you think you can't afford an attorney, you can't afford not to have one. Mm-hmm. You you really need somebody who can play hardball for you. And if you try to play hardball yourself, first of all, you're going to leave things on the table that you don't know to negotiate for. But more importantly, they're going to think you're a really difficult person. Mm-hmm. And you'd rather they think your attorney is a bitch mm-hmm. than they think you're a difficult person that they don't want to work with. I do agree with that. That is very true. It make, it's amazing how perfectly normal people, when they have to talk about money, uh, they get mad when they have to talk about it. And it's like, it's, yeah. even though it's just a necessary part of doing business, they get all cranky. So it's nice well, to have somebody else do it yeah, for you. Yeah. No, and it's not even about getting cranky. It's about um, being a tough negotiator. Mm-hmm. Like, it's perfectly acceptable for your lawyer to be a tough negotiator. But if you're a tough negotiator, they may just think you're just too difficult to work with and they don't want to work with you because they think that you're going to be that way in the writer's room. Yes, that's true. That's mm-hmm. very good advice. Um, we have one more, one um, last question. Uh, uh, someone asked, Dinah mentioned that managers are more likely to develop new writers than, say, agents. Is this true for attorneys as well? So I think it's a kind of a quick way of asking, you know, do you help develop writers or help writers develop their careers? Well, um, yes and no. I do not take on new writers on a percentage basis because mm-hmm. 5% of zero is zero. And I can't, I can't, I'm a self-employed person. I don't have a, a big law firm paying my salary. So I, every, every minute that I work, I have to be able to account for it and have a legal fee. So if, if a deal is on the table and that deal is going to pay my writer enough so that my 5% will equal my legal fee, fine, I'll do it for 5%. But otherwise, my hourly is 400 an hour. Okay. That makes okay. really good sense. Yeah. And then um, I... I do have um, uh, a portion of my of my client base that are new up and coming writers who are mm-hmm. just breaking into the industry. They're doing their first deal. I don't have a problem with that, mm-hmm. but um, I I I caution people against thinking that their lawyer is going to make their career. Yes, or anybody else, frankly. So- yeah. But, but you know, like I, I have a lot of people who contact me who's, who think I'm going to get their movie made. I, it's your job to get your movie made. Yes. It's not my job to get it, you know, to find you the producer and the money and all of that. You have to do the footwork. Mm-hmm. So, interestingly, we have another question coming in that I think you'll find very – which has two parts, which I think you'll find very interesting. Um, and it's called How to Protect Yourself in a Writing Group. So, uh, the first question is, at what point does a film become public domain? because they want to make a film or rewrite a film that was made in 1941. Okay, well, they can't, first of all, before you go to the next part. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be in the public domain 
um, right now things that are in the public domain predate 1923. Mm-hmm. So that film is not in the public domain. So I was going to bring this up, and then I thought, let me not bring it up. We have a limited amount of time. But, okay, so every once in a while I will get somebody who contacts me because they want to remake a movie or they want to remake a television show. Forget about it. Don't waste your time. The studio will never give you the right to remake their property. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't like to give up their library assets. And they and I will tell you that I've been down this road a number of times on behalf of writers. They will just never give it to you. Unless you have a studio deal or you are or you are a director that want, they want to work with. They want to be in bed with Guillermo del Toro. And Guillermo del Toro says, I want to remake blah, blah, blah. Um, then they'll say, okay, come and make the movie with us. But for somebody who is not at that level, you're wasting your time. And yeah. don't write it and then think, oh, I'll write it and I'll go show it to them and they'll think it's so wonderful. No, nope. they won't even read it. <laughs> Actually, they'll be mad you wrote it. They, well, yeah, it's copyright infringement, but they won't even read it. Uh, mm-hmm. The, the um, Some guy uh, did a version of Rocky. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Rocky Three or Rocky Four, and he sued MGM because he showed the script to MGM, and somehow the Dolph Lundgren character showed up in the movie, and it, there was mm-hmm. a similar character in the script, and he sued MGM and he lost because the judge said, "Well, you infringe copyright. You had no right to write that script," and the writer lost. Wow, that's awesome. So just go find something else to write. I know you're passionate about that movie. It's not going to be in the public domain for at least 20 years. So, um, you know, just for the heck of it, go and do a copyright search and see if the copyright is still valid. But um, in all likelihood, it won't be in the public domain for 20 years, and don't waste your time. Right. Um, the, ne- the next question is, kind of, I think, more interesting because I always wonder about it as well. I recently pitched a concept at a writer's group. One year later, I hear that the leader of the group sold a series to Amazon that favors my pitch. What are my options, and how do I protect myself from this happening again? Well, I would say that the writer's group should have uh, an agreement. They should have all the members sign a non-disclosure, non-circumvention agreement that essentially says that they can't steal each other's ideas. And that if they do that the person who wrote the original idea will automatically be attached to the project. Yes. And you, that's something an attorney can draft. Mm-hmm. I think it's, writer's groups are an interesting thing because everybody gets to know everybody else's screenplay, kind of yeah. inside out, you know? Yeah. And and the problem is that writer's group cannot work if writers can't trust each other. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think a good way to make sure that everybody feels like they can trust each other is that they know that there's a there's an agreement in place that everybody signed. Right. If if somebody wants to um, adapt a book or a novella or some other intellectual property created by a friend or a family member and they get permission from that person, um, do they still need to purchase those rights? Or is it the case that no, some, you, can no, somebody no, no, gift you, you those rights? Yeah, you don't have to. Look, you, I would say you at least need to purchase it for a dollar because there has to be consideration for every contract. But beyond that, if somebody wants to give you a property, woohoo! Lucky mm-hmm. you. That is really a great idea. That is actually 
um, that is, I mean, I think people a lot of times don't realize that that uh, every contract requires consideration. So this, yeah. if you don't yeah, have yeah, consideration, sure. it's a problem. And, and, you know, you still need a purchase agreement because you'd still need to acquire rights in writing. But if they're willing, you know, you may want to give them enough money so that if they feel like they need to hire an attorney, they can. But if if, not, if they don't want to hire an attorney and they just want to sign this agreement, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think can, that's a they, they, they can give it to you if they want to. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's excellent to hear. And then let's see. Um, and then I guess the final question is just because it's, it's, I think it's relevant. Someone says that um, now there's a lot of hours, you know, with people like Netflix and, and uh, iTunes and everybody, um, Hulu producing property. So it seems like there's not a limit to the amount of time for television. And yet, so is it still the case that, is it still the case that um, TV is hard to sell into? I mean, yes. as you were describing? It still is, number one, because there's a limit as to the amount of money that's available, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, do you really think that Netflix is going to give a first-time producer $5 million to produce a season of a show and they've never produced anything? That's true. Right, so it's also you know, a matter of experience as well. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants an executive producer that they trust, that they know is going to deliver the project on time, on budget and at the level of quality that they expect and need. I agree. And you own, and you only get there with experience. I agree. And and I think well, I I think one of the reasons I believe that people I know a lot of people are becoming writer producers and one time I actually went up on IMDb and took a look at everything that's being produced for um under a million dollars. It was all writer producers or actor producers, mm-hmm. like really 90%. And that was true all the way up to $3 million. Yeah. And the well, reason you know, that that's the case is because they can. that's the only way that they can guarantee that their stuff's going to get made. I thought I was going to say, if you really want your property to get made, mm-hmm. you have a screenplay. Don't wait for somebody to say yes to you. Mm-hmm. Go out and figure out how you're going to get it done. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think the future is going to be um, populated by quite a, I mean, if you look back at people like um, George Lucas or look at look at Quentin Tarantino and look at all those guys, they did have screenplays and they went ahead and turned them into intellectual property and they built their career based upon the, the projects that they put together. And in a sense, they bought their own ticket in, into the industry. Yeah. Look, I have a client who um, in 2016 had what was considered one of the top 25 films of the year in terms of quality, a little mm-hmm. movie called The Love Witch. Mm-hmm. And uh, James Franco reviewed it, and he thought it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at the credits on that film, she directed it, she wrote it, she produced it, she made the costumes, she went out and she raised the money for it. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, and this past year, I have a client who'd never made a film before, and he decided he wanted to be in the film business, and he made his first horror film. He made it for under $500,000. You would never know it by looking at it, and got distribution right away. Mm-hmm. You know, no, I, I think if, it's, it's more and more common, and you can do a yeah, lot with five hundred k now. And, and the thing is, you, yeah, because now the technology is such that it doesn't. You don't get automatically shut out by not having millions of dollars to make a movie. So, if you really want to get your movie made, and let's say let's say you shop it around for six months and you don't get any bites. Then figure out how you're going to get attach your, find somebody who knows how to do a budget, and attach a producer, 
Um, it doesn't have to be a producer with a huge track record, but somebody who knows how to do a budget, maybe went to film school, and know, has made short films and knows the ins and outs, but maybe they've never made a feature. And then go out and do what you have to do to raise the money. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, one of the things we, I cover in a lot of my events is how to produce a film, and you know, with the word... Uh, you know, going from budgets and shooting schedules all the way through the development process, da da da. So it's so and and I have I bring on line producers and so forth to talk about those kinds of things. And I but I think it's definitely the case that it's it's very hard to get break into sort of uh, the studio system, whether for features or for um, television, without having credits. Just yeah, as you said, they're looking they're looking for a track record. They are looking for a track record, and you, you can't be part of the club until you've had a success. Mm-hmm. You that know, and so if you really want to break in and you're having trouble, go and write a film that can be made for under a million dollars, and then go and make it. Exactly, exactly. Well, we've we've taken up so much of your time, and we, you know, we could this group could keep keep you answering questions for literally the next few days. But um, I, I would like to take a, a moment to say thank you very much for coming on the call and for answering, for providing such useful information. And um, do, would you do you want to go ahead and um, review how people can reach out to you if they would like to? Um, oh, oh, also one other thing before we go, you mentioned the fact that you're actually um, fully bilingual, so you're you're a particularly good contact. You're a great contact for every for for writers and filmmakers across the board. But you're particularly good if somebody is. Um, happens to be producing content uh, for the Spanish-speaking for Spanish-speaking communities worldwide, or um, wants to work. Uh, you know, I would imagine you were pretty good at negotiating deals for um, helping people negotiate deals for Spanish distribution in countries like, say, Spain or Mexico, Central or South America. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I speak Spanish, I read Spanish, I write Spanish. I don't draft in Spanish uh, because, mm-hmm. mo- quite honestly, most of the time I get. Spanish-speaking clients who come to me because they're doing business in the U.S. Mm-hmm. or because they're doing they're doing business in their country but with a U.S. company. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I'm fully bilingual, fully That's bilingual. Cool. And and anybody who wants to get in touch with me, you can email me at dinaperezlaw at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. That's D-I-N-A-H-P-E-R-E-Z-L-A-W at gmail dot com. Or you can phone me at three two three nine three five seven nine five five. I'm happy to talk with you and and see what you need and see how I can help you. Great. Well, and what I, what I'll do um, with your permission is I'll go ahead and uh, save uh, download this recording after it's finished, edit it up so it's nice and clean, and then I'll send it over to you for review. And then if you if you approve its release, we'll go ahead and we'll make it available to um, the people that were on this call. And uh, with your permission, I'll make it available to other people going forward who happen to join my group. If, and yeah, you know, that, that I'll make it available. Fine. I'll promote it widely, I should say. Yes, that would be fine. Oh, you're so wonderful. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed this call. It was truly wonderful. You've been a pleasure. My pleasure. It was fun. Great. I hope you have an excellent okay. evening. <laughs> okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. I hope you had a nice call. And remember, you can always send me que- If you have questions about anything, you can send me an email at nancy.fulton at yahoo.com. I look forward to being of service to you.